Luke, what would your reaction be if I said uh, join us next time as we talk about the 1997 thriller Breakdown? With Kurt Russell? (laughs) Well, I guess I would need to go and watch it and try to hope to find some pearl of analysis to bring to the next episode. Oh my god, I would hope you would ask why we weren't doing Jewel instead. You know, we've been having this all week where we've been having like weird... Synchronicities. Remember the other day when you randomly brought up Margot Kidder and I told you that I've been thinking about her all day? Yes. What's the weirder thing there? Oh, look, I think it's all pretty fucked up. Let's start the show. Hello, and welcome to episode 33 of Cellulite Junkies. I am Luke Kane, and I am joined, as always, by Damien Heath. This month, we are taking a look at a film that exploited paranoid myths about women's equality to terrify men into fidelity. Adrian Lyne's 1987 psychological thriller, Fatal Attraction. A look that led to an evening. We were attracted to each other at the party. That was obvious. You're on your own for the night, that's also obvious. A mistake he'd regret all his life. Now where's your wife? Daddy! Honey, oh God, I'm... And you're here with a strange girl being a naughty boy. I don't think having dinner with anybody's a crime. I've got to see you. This is going to stop. No, it's not going to stop. It's going to go on and on. She keeps calling the apartment. Hello? Every time Beth answers the phone, she hangs up. I'm scared, Jimmy. You play fair with me? Do you have an affair with her? I'll play fair with you. I don't want to lose my family. Why could you do that? You're scared of me, aren't you? You're afraid. Gutless, heartless, spineless. If you ever come near my family again, I'll kill you. You understand? Daddy! I'm not going to be ignored. Alicia, where's Ellen? She's gone. Call the police. Whatever resentment she's feeling, she's probably got it out of her system. She didn't get it out of her system, what then? Fatal attraction. I guess you thought you'd get away with it. Well, you can't. In London 1980, 31-year-old writer James Dearden was out of ideas. Creativity was in his blood. The son of actress Melissa Stribling, who'd once extended her neck for Christopher Lee in 1958's Dracula, James had studied French literature at Oxford University. His father, esteemed director Basil Dearden, had died in a car accident when he was 21. One weekend, while his wife was out of town, James grew restless. He remembered a girl he'd met at a party once who'd given him her number. What would happen, he wondered, if he called her, invited her to dinner? It was a notion a fantasy. But he finished the thought. They might share a glass of wine, get to know each other, flirt. One simple call, but fraught with any number of potential consequences. This became the premise of a 42-minute short he made called Diversion, which screened at the Chicago Film Festival to great acclaim. It was passed around to a number of people in the industry. Amongst them was producer Stanley R. Jaff, who'd arrived in London looking for new talent. Jaff had recently formed a subsidiary production company at Paramount with his producing partner, Sherry Lansing. Lansing was immediately taken with the concept. 
the partners flew Dearden to Los Angeles to discuss expanding the story to feature length. Lansing had the idea to make Alex fall pregnant, complicating the relationship between the guilty husband and invested adulteress. Paramount was unimpressed with the initial draft. The male protagonist was unsympathetic, and the other woman a sad harpy. Financing negotiations stalled. As Dearden went to work making the screenplay more appealing to the money men, Lansing and Jaff bumped into Michael Douglas on a flight. They pitched him the story. It was the perfect what if, the ultimate quickie nightmare, he recalled. If Jaff and Lansing could raise the money, he wanted to star. But Douglas wasn't enough of a draw to hook Paramount, or any studio for that matter. The project needed a director. John Carpenter was approached but turned it down. Brian De Palma expressed interest but wanted to ramp up the horror. His version ended with Alex donning a kabuki mask and terrorising a household with a kitchen knife on Halloween. The producers weren't thrilled, but De Palma was a hot ticket and the only reason Paramount was willing to put up the money. Then, a few weeks before principal photography was to commence, De Palma pulled out. He didn't want to make the movie with Michael Douglas, whom he now felt wasn't sympathetic enough to play Dave. He gave the producers an ultimatum, him or Douglas. At that point, Douglas had been loyal to the project for two years. Jaff and Lansing waved De Palma goodbye and started from scratch. The project stalled. Dearden's screenplay was still floating around studio executive desks and growing stale. Finally, ICM agent Diane Kahn sent the script to her client, director Adrian Lyne. A British export who'd enjoyed enormous success with Flashdance four years earlier, he read it in one sitting. I went and woke my wife up. I fell in the bed and said, listen, if I don't fuck this up, I know this is a huge movie. Reinvigorated, Jaff sought out Lyne's previous film, the controversial psychosexual drama Nine and a Half Weeks. It was a deflating experience. The smoky atmosphere and fetishist imagery had nothing to do with the movie he and Lansing had envisioned. Jaff knew Lyne was not the right fit, but he reluctantly met the director. After a wide-ranging two-hour-long conversation, and with few other options at his disposal, Jaff and Lyne shook hands. With Douglas already cast as Dan, the producers began considering actresses for the most demanding role, Alex Forrest. It proved harder than expected. Deborah Winger and Jessica Lange turned it down. Barbara Hershey was keen, but not available. Susan Sarandon and Michelle Pfeiffer were discussed. Judy Davis flew in to test for the part, but once she arrived, tried to dissuade Line from making what she described as the worst piece of shit she'd ever read. Kirstie Alley read for the role, and although not cast, she did make a lasting contribution. Her husband at the time had once been stalked by a woman who'd camped outside their home. She played Line a voice message the woman had left on their machine. Line had did and write it into the film. The producers knew Glenn Close was keen to test, but they kept putting her off. A theatre-trained actress, Close had received an Oscar nomination for her first film, The World According to Garp. She followed it up with two more nominations, for The Big Chill and The Natural. But Close's persona was wholesome and motherly, Hollywood code for unfuckable. It was not a typical Glenn Close part, which is exactly why she campaigned for it. I just wanted a character that would demand more of me, she would later say. I'd never played someone who was supposed to be sexy. I knew I could do it. They were so sure I was wrong. They didn't even want me to read because they were embarrassed. Knowing the odds were stacked against her, she wore a black dress, let her curls fly loose, 
and read a few scenes. The producers knew they'd found Alex. She was dangerous, vulnerable, sensual and erotic, Lansing said. To prepare for the part, Close threw herself into research. She consulted two psychiatrists who diagnosed Alex as having suffered sexual abuse before memory. Though never referenced in the film, the backstory became the foundation upon which Close built the character. Principal photography began in New York City on September 29, 1986, on an $11.6 million budget. The production was fought with location pressures and flared tempers. Jaff grew frustrated with Line, who worked spontaneously, improvising setups and changing his mind frequently, causing what the producers deemed to be unnecessary delays. We would argue, Line later admitted, Stanley's opinionated and so is Sherry. I think it was good because it brought the best out of me. Before filming the frenzied kitchen sink sex scene, Close and Douglas cracked open a bottle of champagne. The carnality of this scene triggered audiences at the time, who were redefining their view of sex in light of a new pandemic sweeping the globe, which the World Health Organization had only the year before termed HIV. But the most well-remembered scene involved a boiling pot, an unsuspecting wife and a dead mammal famous for its sexual proclivity. Initially I had her grilling the bunny, writer James Dearden recalled, but I thought that was too grotesque, so we boiled it instead. The rabbit was purchased from a butcher and boiled with all its innards contained. The stench was unbearable, Line recalled. It permeated the whole house. Close and Douglas worked well together, despite the challenges of the shoot. Close would later admit she was intimidated by Douglas. He was so suave and so Hollywood, she said. I don't mean that negatively. He would tell me these off-colour jokes and half of them I wouldn't get. He was trying to relate to me, but it only made me more nervous. Principal photography wrapped on October 31st, 1986. Line finished the edit within a few months and the team were pleased with the results, but test audiences were lukewarm. The first screening garnered a score of 74 out of a possible 100. The problem? The ending. In the final scenes, Alex slices her throat with a knife marked by Dan's fingerprints, framing him for her murder. You think I did? As Dan is carted away by police, his wife Beth scrambles upstairs to the attic, finds the tape recording Alex had made, in which she threatens to kill herself. I'll kill myself, I will. I'll kill myself. Evidence that will vindicate her husband. It seemed a satisfactory punishment to the team, but not to the audience. In the words of the president of Paramount, Ned Tannen, they want us to terminate her with extreme prejudice. He insisted on a reshoot. Glenn Close refused. She'd grown protective of Alex and did not want to turn her into a slasher movie psycho. She ultimately relented, in part thanks to the advice of good friend William Hurt. You've made your point, he said. Now go be a team player. Close wasn't the only one with reservations. Lyne, Dearden and Lansing also believed in the ending they had. So the Paramount chief made a deal. He would give them $1.5 million to shoot it, and if they didn't like it, they were under no obligation to use it. And so, six months after production had ended, cast and crew reassembled for an additional three weeks. A bathroom set was constructed for the grisly ending. Chloe suffered a concussion when she was pushed backwards against a glass mirror, and ear and eye infections from being repeatedly thrown backwards into a steaming tub. At the end of the shoot, she was taken to hospital to be treated for these minor injuries, and found out she was pregnant with her first child, Annie. 
To this day, she finds it hard to watch the scene, knowing how close she came to inducing her own miscarriage. With the new footage in hand, Lyne returned to the editing room. I worked really hard on the last 20 minutes of the movie to make it as exciting as possible, he revealed. The moment when Glenn Close appears in the mirror in the bathroom, it's fun when people see that and jump out of their seats. Dearden estimates that the film's terrifying showdown, which became a standard device of the endless cycle in the house retreads this film would inspire, added an extra $100 million to the box office. The film hit theatres on September 18, 1987, which is when the real story of Fatal Attraction begins. It emerged at a time when major releases had the maturity and relevance to hit us where we lived. A film that came along at a perfect time, encapsulating all of the anxieties of the 80s. It was, as Time magazine called it, the zeitgeist movie of the decade. So Damien, what did you think of my introduction? No, we're not doing that. But did you like it? Yeah, it was very good. Oh, thank you. Um, and, and, you know, just incidentally, what did you think of Fatal Attraction? You have always had this idea that I don't like Fatal Attraction, which I don't understand where that came from or how that came about. And I think during the course of this podcast, we'll probably agree about Fatal Attraction more than we disagree. I've always enjoyed the film, love watching it. It's great fun. I don't think it's great in the way that we usually think of greatness in cinema and the way that we talk about it on this podcast, but it's great entertainment. And it's in a genre that I do love. And it spawned all of these countless number of imitators, many of which are equally great entertainment without quite reaching, I guess, the artistic value of Fatal Attraction or the importance of it, especially socially. But I've never paid too much attention to it theoretically. So it's interesting to dive deep into that for this episode. I rented it when I was maybe 15 or 16. It scared the crap out of me, this movie. It scared me so, so much. And I would later discover that I'm a, a big fan of Adrian Lyne movies, as you know. I think his, his uh, shot compositions are always really elegant and he photographs cities beautifully. Even Fatal Attraction, watching it this time, I was so pleased by how he captured New York City and the feel of New York City in the 80s. There's an interesting tension in Adrian Lyne films because his scenes have a naturalism that probably aren't deserving of the subject matter that he generally chooses to focus on because a lot of his films have absurd premises. But if you look at um, you know, any scene on its own, the scene is usually really naturally captured. The actors are beautiful. People are talking over one another. I think I mentioned to you once that it sort of almost reminds me of like a Robert Altman style of filmmaking where there's a messiness, a, a life messiness to them that makes them feel really natural and real and adult. He gives the film so many lovely little details that make it real, you know, like uh, Ellen with the roll-ups while she's on the phone to her dad. You know, another director would have just had her on the phone. But in the movie, you get so captivated watching this business that the daughter has with the roll-up while she's talking to Dan after he's moved out. Glenn Close cutting herself in the leg makes that scene, it elevates the thread of that scene so much. Even something like Michael Douglas when his daughter tells him that he has a phone call, even Michael Douglas getting up and only wearing underpants. Yes, yes. And like then, you know, there are these moments that catch you off guard, like when they're first having this really erotic sex scene, him and Glenn Close, and then suddenly his pants are down on his knees and he has to waddle and carry her to the bed. (laughs) So it's just this moment of strange humour and realness in a scene that's clearly going for sensuality. I do think the film is more interesting the first half uh, before Alex's behavior becomes inexcusable 
it's more interesting when the moral res- responsibility is proportioned evenly amongst Alex and Dan. Once she throws the acid on the car, you kind of stop asking that question about how much is each character accountable for. Dan becomes excused purely on, on a comparative basis because Alex's behavior is demonstrably wrong and monstrous. But I mean, overall, I think that the, the lasting thing about Fatal Attraction are, are the fact that it's directed by somebody really quite smart and that Glenn Close is just phenomenally good in it and a very, very frightening villain. I don't really think you can discuss Fatal Attraction without talking about the context in which it was made and the era in which it was made. Yeah, big time. And I guess um, Michael Douglas's other movie that year was Wall Street, and that has a big uh, relation to the decade that it was made in. That's a very famous decade for upheaval and change and a return to conservatism under Ronald Reagan. You know, he reduced federal income taxes and the highest reduction was at the top of the pay scale and he reduced government oversight and he essentially encouraged Americans to go and create their own wealth. Stop relying on the government, rely less on the government, including welfare. Uh, And a result of this kind of became the ruthless nature of private enterprise, which during Reagan's two administrations became primarily about wealth creation with little room for policing the ethics of that. And that's what is best demonstrated in Wall Street. But it's also evident in the male-dominated professional world of fatal attraction. Alex Forrest is an outlier in this world. I think she's the only professional woman we see in the movie, if I'm not mistaken. No, I think you're right. I mean, certainly Beth never expresses any interest in a career before or after Ellen's birth. We just assume that she's a housewife, happy to be a housewife, happy to have her husband be the breadwinner, and she looks after the kid. And even the other female characters are all assistants in their jobs, secretaries. So the the kind of role that you would expect a woman in a professional environment to have, subservient to the man. And then you get, as you talked about, the AIDS crisis. And that was noticed by doctors, I think, in LA and San Francisco on the West Coast and in New York on the East Coast in 1981. And they started writing a lot of things about it in that year and, and subsequent years. And the CDC saw extra funding for the crisis, but they were routinely rejected by the Reagan administration. And I think it was more than 36,000 Americans had been diagnosed with AIDS and more than 20,000 had died by the time that Reagan publicly acknowledged the disease as a problem. And that was in 1986. So, of course, this delay had caused the issue to balloon astronomically in the next half decade, as so little had been done to this point. And then, you know, from 1986 until the early 90s, 91 around then, you had the the real peak of the epidemic when, you know, finally they were giving funding to the issue, but so many people were dying from it. So the liberal conservative viewpoint that Reagan held kind of enabled him and others to place the blame for AIDS on the victim. And they shouldn't have been sodomites. They shouldn't have engaged in casual sex or extramarital affairs. Basically, they should have kept that dick in their pants. And Fatal Attraction shows one of the other effects of not doing just that. But also, conservatism at the time was definitely about the family unit and the protection of that. It was recent to Reagan coming into power that access to divorces was made easier because they came up with something called no-fault divorce. And, of course, casual sexual encounters were commonplace or becoming more commonplace, partly because of birth control. So in the 60s and 70s, when the drugs were freely flowing, 
we'd been taught to live our lives sometimes without consequence. But now there was a consequence shown in Fatal Attraction and the family as we once knew it was the safe haven from those bad things that could happen. And I think what you say there might explain why there was such a backlash against second wave feminism, that there was this return to the idea of the nuclear family, this resurgence of conservatism that was in the air. Certainly Reagan did nothing to support or endorse or provide encouragement to to women's lib. He did not support the Equal Rights Act, which aimed to end legal distinctions between men and women, because he argued that women were already protected under the 14th Amendment. Reagan was not a fan of feminism, and he didn't come out and say that. I think it was the absence of saying anything that indicated to the American public that this was a man who had a very traditional view of how families should exist. A couple of people in his administration weren't as judicious. Faith Whittlesey, who was one of his spokespersons, described feminism as a straitjacket for women. Another Reagan official accused women who chose to work and send their children to daycare as weakening the moral fibre of the nation. Nancy Reagan was a Beth Gallagher type of first lady. She said nothing about feminism. She did nothing for feminism. Although, you know, her biggest controversy was when she decided to replace the White House China, which probably tells you everything you need to know about Nancy (laughs) Reagan. We know that politics is cyclical and there had been a lot of liberalism, a lot of activism, a lot of movements for women, for gays, for blacks you know, through the 70s. And so it sort of makes sense that America had gotten to a point where they felt that maybe all of this liberalism was spiralling out of control and they needed something a bit more grounding and a bit more quiet. Reagan is pretty much acknowledged, even though there were other Republican presidents during the time, but he's pretty much acknowledged as the first true conservative in about 45 years that was in power as president. So it had been a long time and there had been so much unheaval, upheaval before that. Reagan is credited for creating or being one of the creators of modern conservatism. Hmm. Conservatist voters today still look and sound a lot like Reagan. Maybe not in the last few years, but definitely, you know, before that, post-Reagan, yes. I'm kind of not including Trump, obviously, because he's just a buffoon who doesn't really represent anything except himself. But actual people who are interested in politics and interested in the country, serious people, their conservatism still looks a lot like Reagan's. There was an onslaught from about 1980 to 1987 of fear-based media targeted at women who were considered liberated women, which is, I guess, a fancy way of saying women who are self-supporting, who work, who aren't living for the husbands in their life. There is a book that was written by Susan Faludi, and it was called Backlash, The Undeclared War Against Women. And it goes through hundreds, it cites hundreds of articles that basically propagated myths about what it meant to be a second wave feminist. The myths were, in a nutshell, women over 40 won't get married. I was wondering why is it that all the interesting guys are always married? They won't fall pregnant. I'm 36 years old. It may be my last chance to have a child. They will be lonely and have mental health issues. If you can't fuck me, why don't you just hit me? So sad. You know that, Alex, lonely and very sad. And their children that they put in daycare centres will be molested. Ellen, why thought you picked her up already? I'm just going to give you a list of a couple of them, but I've only taken them from 1986 because there were so many that I had to basically limit what I was going to read out on the show. That's interesting because that's taking stuff from directly before Fatal Attraction as well. 
June 1986, this is the big one. Newsweek ran a famous cover story called The Marriage Crunch. If you're a single woman, here are your chances of getting married. It was allegedly based on a Harvard-Yale study. It said that white, college-educated women over 40 had a 2.6% chance of getting married and were statistically more likely to be killed by a terrorist. I mean, that's ridiculous. (laughs) That is just ridiculous. Statistically more likely to be killed by a terrorist. (laughs) How many terrorist deaths are in the US each year and how many women over 40 who are college-educated get married? I would say the women getting married far outweighs the number of people being killed by terrorists. This is a quote from the article. For years, bright young women single-mindedly pursued their careers, assuming that when it was time for a husband, they could pencil one in. They were wrong. Gosh, they would be just rolling in their fucking graves about today, wouldn't they? So that article travelled via wire service around the world and inspired a flurry of similar articles. One was called Feminism's Identity Crisis, and that included a drawing of a woman executive sitting at a desk despondently and holding an empty picture frame. <laughs> I love this that. is real. This is really <laughs> what they were sending out there. Oh, gosh. Darlene Chan, who after she saw Fatal Attraction, she was a vice president of 20th Century Fox. She called it the psychotic manifestation of the Newsweek marriage study. And that marriage study was in movies in the 90s. That's how big it was. It was referenced in like huge cinema release films. In July 1986, ABC ran a three-hour special called After the Sexual Revolution. Richard Threlkeld, who was the host, he said that women's success had come at the cost of their relationships. He also said, and this is a direct quote, the more women achieve in their careers, the higher their chances of divorce. It aired a follow-up special one year later called Single in America. It only featured single women in America. You know, I mean, I'm sure that what he says there, the way that he portrayed it in this show was wrong. But I assume that the number of people who have high-ranking careers, if they focus on their careers, it probably does affect their marriage somewhat. Well, it's an additional pressure, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's sort of like stating the obvious, but in an extremely alarmist way. Yes, and then looking only at one side of this so-called issue and blowing it out of proportion. Yeah, it's like saying women who suffer from manic depression have a higher rate of divorce than women who are just effortlessly happy. (laughs) Thank you so much, Richard. (laughs) That same year, a futurist named Faith Popcorn coined the phrase cocooning in an article, and that entered the lexicon. It described a trend where women were abandoning the office and returning home. So women would say, oh, no, I've decided to cocoon. I'm cocooning. That same year, Fortune ran a cover story called Why Women Are Bailing Out. The publication interviewed businesswomen who'd given up their jobs. Forbes and USA Today ran similar articles within a couple of weeks. About mental health, in 1986, same year, Los Angeles Times interviewed a psychologist who said that 66% of people in therapy were single working women grappling with anxiety triggered by loneliness. This one is not from 1986, but it, was, it got a lot of traction when it was published in 1982. The New England Journal of Medicine published a study that showed women between the ages of 31 and 35 had a 40% chance, 40% chance of being infertile. Between what ages? 31 and 35. Okay, well, that seems way too young. In 1984, a Newsweek feature ran a story about an epidemic of child abuse in daycare centres. It was based on a few reports which were later found innocent in court. This is that McMartin preschool. 
the satanic panic. So all of this journalism, and I've just cited a few there. There are hundreds. All of this fear-based journalism did two things. It aimed to frighten career women back into the house, obviously. Women in the workforce, though, jumped 6% through the 80s, although it probably would have been higher without all the rhetoric. And it made men suspicious of women's lib. In fact, between 1986 and 1988, a national survey showed that the number of men who believed women should accept traditional roles in the household jumped by 4%. That was coming off a decade of men being very much in support of women's lib. So you're saying that women in the workforce only increased 6% in the 1980s? Yeah, in America. Yeah, well, that seems low to me as well. All of it was untrue. Women over 40 had a 32 to 41% chance of getting married, not 2%. There is no evidence, never has been any evidence, to support that single working women are more prone to anxiety and require therapy than housewives. Women over 31, as I've said, have a 13.5% chance of being infertile, not 40%. And children are statistically twice as likely to be abused at home as they are in daycare. Yeah, well, look, 87% of people know you can make up statistics that back your own ideals. So obviously, um, Hollywood loves to reflect what's going on inside the culture. They figure that that's a good money-making strategy, a good business move, and of course it is. So films exploring women in the workplace changed quite dramatically. You know, in the 70s, we had these celebrations of women's lib, an unmarried woman, my brilliant career, Julia, a woman under the influence, up the sandbox. In the 80s, we get movies like Working Girl, Basic Instinct, Disclosure, which reflect that um, antipathy towards feminism and were a far cry from the films that had come a decade before. And Fatal Attraction is considered one of those films, a reaction in a post-feminist phase to second wave feminism. You get all of this research, as you've just put forward, that is completely false or, or alarmist and, you know, bordering on just outright lies. And yet there are so many credible things that they could point to that harm a woman in her career, that put her on a footing that is not equal with men. You know, women are, as we know, they're the primary caregivers of children. So women who are who go through a divorce typically have less time. They have less finances because they may have to pay for childcare if they want to return to work. They don't have equal pay with men. And they definitely didn't in the 1980s. So there's a whole bunch of factors that are real and are huge issues for women in the workforce that they then went the other way and they created all of this stuff that I guess looking at the personal side of it and saying, well, you're going to fail in this respect if you're not married by 40, if you don't have a kid by 30, you're not going to have a kid and you're not going to get married. Neither of those are focusing on a woman's professional life, which is, I guess, what we've learned to do since then is to say, okay, well, how can we make a woman's professional life better, more supported, more equal, so that she can continue to do that. It's it's almost like an encouragement is the way that we do things now as it should be, as it should have been then. And a discouragement is what they were going for back then with all of that, I guess, research that I'm putting in, in quotes. But I mean, a lot of that wouldn't be an issue if true equality amongst the sexes had been achieved. That's right. If true equality had been achieved and a woman could earn as much as a man for the same work then that takes away financial pressure. If there were more uh, women as CEOs, as like, you know, meaningful heads of companies, like in meaningful positions, I mean, then that would eliminate the stress that women feel with not being able to break the glass ceiling. So a lot of these additional pressures are caused by the fact that, yes, 
a degree of equality was achieved, at least the conversation sort of expanded through the 70s, but it it wasn't achieved. And that's evident because otherwise, if it had been achieved, we wouldn't have had the Me Too movement a couple of years ago. No, that's right. And and equality still hasn't been achieved. And that's why you're, you're calling it second wave feminism, because there was feminism before that. I guess the big question is, does the film posit a link between feminism and Alex's problems? The film itself in an individual case does not. Doesn't it? A lot of her anxiety is, is wrapped around these issues. Got this woman who's decided Dan's the one, he's impregnated her, she likes him. So now she's going to go to the ends of the earth to claim him. It's almost like a woman who was raised on second wave feminism decided to pursue a career to look after herself, to be self-supporting, has gotten to a point in her life where, because of all of this rhetoric, has gone against her own grain for 36 years, now finds an opportunity in Dan to actually right her wrong and becomes so desperate to do that that she ends up dead in a tub. Why does the film go to such pains to make her a career woman? He meets her at work and make her so polemically different from Beth. I think it is made of its time, as we've said, and so those things naturally creep into it. It may be the only kind of world that that screenwriter could create for a woman. Maybe he didn't know any better. Maybe he didn't know anything else. I find it hard to think that it was as malicious as it could sound. I find it hard to believe that the film was made with that kind of malicious intent. I don't think it was, but I think it turned out that way because of probably pressures from Paramount and pressures from its investors that they kept making compromises right up until they reshot the ending. The arguments against Fatal Attraction in this way far more credibility than they would have if it had been the original ending. One thing that really bothered me this viewing was, did they need to give Alex long blood red nails and a dingy empty apartment that's only got an exocycle in it? It's got a lamp. Don't forget the lamp. And they've put her on a street where, you know, there's these skinned animals on hooks and there are these bins on fire. You know, probably not. She's scary enough without that stuff. Glenn Close sells it without that stuff. Another thing is, you know, there's such lengths that the filmmakers have gone to to make Michael Douglas an everyman. He's wearing, you know, just very, very kind of standard vanilla white guy shirts and pants, very like typical urban businessman, white collar type guy. The family is so ordinary. Even the first couple of shots, which are stolen from Hitchcock's Psycho, where we begin on the city and then we slowly zero in on this apartment as if it could be any apartment. You know, everything about it just seems to be like, oh, you know, and just a story somewhere in the world that could be anybody's story anywhere in the world. Like the idea that they could have lucked into another apartment and found exactly the same family in exactly the same situation. I think a lot of the visual language of the movie sends the message that these characters are merely composites. Because we see the family as a composite, we automatically look at Alex as a composite, as a symbol rather than an individual. I think there's uh, one scene in there, and it's the first meeting, professional meeting, where Alex and Dan are there together, and they're there to talk about they want to publish a book. It's by a woman who has slept with some politicians. You want to publish a novel in which one of the characters is a senator from New Jersey who's fooling around. Now, there's a certain congressman from Ohio who claims the character's based upon him, and he's filed an injunction against the publication. 
Dan asks the question of Alex, do you believe her? And Alex looks contemplating it and she smiles and she says, Yeah, I believe her. That, for me, is the most feminist part of the movie Fatal Attraction. It's such a throwaway line. I don't know if you thought much about that line when you watched the movie. In a way, Alex is just so desperately wanting to be taken seriously, which is another way of saying wanting to be believed in. The fact that she believes this writer and that that's enough to kind of settle the problem at the meeting. I mean, ultimately it becomes her central motive for the rest of the film is wanting Dan to take her seriously, wanting to be believed in. Incidentally, that is the second of three moments in the film where we are encouraged to link sex with danger. Mm -hmm. This idea that this woman's had an affair with a politician is causing this legal problem. But the first one is when Dan tells Beth that his boss is wearing a neck brace because he was too vigorously fucking his wife and sustained an injury. (laughs) Well, since we got a little time, uh, maybe you can tell us exactly what happened to your neck, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) That's cute. Very cute. And then the third one is obviously how Alex comes to represent a threat. So the film very, very consistently is telling us sex equals danger. Yeah. All right, here, here, you, Same. drink. I want you with a lampshade on your head by 10 o'clock. Yeah, why should the day begin either? <laughs> Hello? Alex has Dan's home number. I guess anybody who has an affair these days is not going to give away an easy way to contact the person who is having the affair to the person they are having the affair with. So that was... Something very much of its time. Casual sex and one night stands are are more common these days where people get married later and where divorce rates are higher. What you raised before, all of that research about trying to scare women back into the family home and trying to create this perfect nuclear family. I mean, boy, did that backfire. The other thing that we have to remember is that this came out of America and America has always had a little bit of an uncomfortable relationship to honestly exploring sexuality or talking about it. Lisa Zeidner for Slate.com wrote that the film explores our Puritan queasiness about sexual desire. Time magazine featured Close and Douglas on the cover and called the movie A Nightmare Parable of Sex in the 80s. So there was this big emphasis on the idea that casual, uh, uninhibited sexual contact is somehow immoral and that there will be some sort of retribution for that behaviour. Because the act of having an extramarital affair is immoral and unethical, but it's not illegal. The act of having casual sex to some people is immoral, but it's not illegal. The act of having casual sex with many people is immoral to some people but it's not illegal and thank god it's not illegal because damien you and i are (laughs) big advocates for casual sex with random people yes that's right or i was before i got married you're still on the horse i'm still on the horse the proverbial horse (laughs) sometimes it's a real horse you've made a few boys nay in your time geez luke don't do that (laughs) please don't do that how long have you been married Nine years. Do you have any kids? Mm-hmm. Got a six-year-old girl. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm lucky. So what are you doing here? What about the idea of Michael Douglas as a sympathetic character? I mean, obviously the film has to work over time to make him somebody sympathetic. Apparently in initial drafts, he calls her 
he basically initiates the affair. Whereas in this film, they almost make it Glenn Close's doing. Yeah, certainly she's leading the way. You have to be discreet. Oh, God, yeah. Are you? Yeah, my word. Discreet. They try to take a lot of the responsibility away from Michael Douglas or from Dan. Is he someone you root for? And is that fair? Oh, look, it's difficult. Fatal Attraction is so ingrained. And I love Michael Douglas. I've always found Michael Douglas just fascinating to watch. He's not the greatest actor, but he's so good at these kinds of roles. He's so good at that professional business person, that professional husband. He's so good at that role. It would be ridiculous to say that Dan needs to leave his wife and begin a relationship with Alex simply because he slept with her and got her pregnant. And I can't imagine that anybody argued that he should do that. If I look at Fatal Attraction from a thriller perspective, yes, I sympathise with Dan. The film's built in such a way that it's impossible not to, because he's a good guy. He's even referred to in some reviews that I'm going to reference later on as a good guy, a generally good guy. He even seeks help for Alex when she presents to him with symptoms of whatever mental illness she may have. The film doesn't really tell us that Dan is disowning his actions and his action being sleeping with Alex but rather that he has a stable marriage, which Alex knew about, that Alex first pursued him, and that he has been emotionally supportive immediately after that affair. It then turns out that, you know, her actions post-affair become outrageous and violent and dangerous and criminal and beyond justification. And I guess the question is, did Dan drive her to that? And in her mind, obviously, yes, he did. And in our minds, too, maybe he had a large part in that. For me personally, there's bigger issues, and and harking a little bit back to feminism, but there's bigger issues than just the actions of the main characters. A lot of Alex can be read in the idea of the unwed single mother whose child is born out of wedlock, and in this case, not even while in a de facto relationship. I think the unborn child is a little bit glossed over in the film, in a way. It seems to be something that the audience can doubt if they choose to. I think that's a huge part of the driving factor for Alex in the movie. She frequently says things like, you need to own up to your responsibilities, obviously referencing his fatherhood and what and to what extent he's going to be involved. A lot of her actions then, for me, come from the fact that Dan suggests getting an abortion. Just think about it. We are going to live with this for the rest of our lives. I know that. I know how you feel. It's a big thing. But it doesn't have to be a problem. Really, it doesn't. So it was in 1975 that Section 4D of the Social Security Act was passed, which allowed for child support payments. And as I said before, just prior to this, no-fault divorce had been passed and divorce rates had started increasing quickly. I found an interview with Cynthia Osborne, who was the director of the Child and Family Research Partnership and associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin in which she goes over how, following Section 4D, the family structure began changing in America at an accelerated rate and the system failed to keep up. So in 1975, she says, the majority of children who were raised by a single parent were born during wedlock and they were then products of divorce rather than being born out of wedlock. They were raised primarily by the mother during the marriage as she was the primary caregiver and the father was the primary breadwinner. And they were likely to live with the mother post-divorce, as mothers were awarded custody more often than fathers. Following a divorce, the man would typically experience a rise in wealth, and the woman would typically experience a depletion of finances. So child support was brought in to offset this to return the care given to the child to the level pre-divorce. 
during that time period, divorce was one of the single greatest predictors that a woman, especially a woman with children, would fall into poverty. So obviously after child support payments come in, some of that difference in finances is offset, but definitely not all of it, not even close. Mothers are still now the primary caregivers for the children, and they are now still experiencing less access to money. So naturally, as a result of this, women started to enter the labour force, and that's what we were seeing in the 1980s and all of those examples that you gave before of the backlash against that. But there were women like Alex Forrest, and there were also women who were single mothers. One of the fastest entrants into the labour market were women with children under the age of five, states Osborne in her interview. And at the same time, non-marital births rose. Osborne notes that this was nearly non-existent in the 1970s, but in the mid-1980s was up to 20% of children born. Again, to women like Alex Forrest. So we have an almost perfect storm of all of these issues in fatal attraction. Alex Forrest is a working woman who must now be a primary caregiver or possibly a sole caregiver for a child. And she's in the segment of the population that now most often falls into poverty. She's seeking assistance and it is her right to do so. And to not get this assistance will put her at a severe disadvantage professionally in her career. And that's something that's obviously very important to her. And it will put her personal life, which we assume is comfortable financially, in peril. And I found a great quote from Ray Alexandra for KQED, which is a public media collective, titled Revisiting Fatal Attraction in the Age of Me Too. And she states, In 2018, any father-to-be in a movie angrily asking a pregnant woman why she didn't use contraception would automatically be viewed as the villain. You don't, uh... Use anything? I had a very bad miscarriage last year. I didn't think I could get pregnant. The woman on screen declaring that she could and would raise the child on her own would be viewed as resilient. I want this child. It has nothing to do with you. I want it whether you're going to be a part of it or not. The fact that audiences saw it the other way around in 1987 isn't just astounding. It's evidence of the feminist progress we've made in the years since. As I said before, it's not a crime to have an affair. It's not a crime to have casual sex. It's not a crime to give birth to a child out of wedlock, and it isn't a crime to ask for child support, but it is a crime not to pay for it. Why are you telling me? Why? Why just go ahead and do it? Michael Douglas is definitely shirking his responsibilities in this movie, and that's what you can have a problem with. Yeah, but even still watching Fatal Attraction, he still feels like the victim of that scene. Yeah, he does, uh, definitely. And it comes down to, really, he's a coward. If he paid the support, he would have to tell his wife. He's a coward and there's something wrong with how we interpret that scene still. I mean, I think it must be Alex is starting to show real symptoms of having problems and we've grown attached to the family. And so it's all about perspective, isn't it? And what the, what the filmmakers choose to show us and whose side they want us to be on. But really, objectively looking at that scene, it's just our reactions are so wrong and fucked up that we're still with you know, poor Dan, who's a victim of this horrible woman. I mean, I watched Fatal Attraction this time having more way more sympathy for Alex than I had for Dan and way more sympathy for Alex than I ever have before. I've always felt that she gets the raw end of the deal in this film. Not to mention the fact that, you know, in movies where characters get cancer, we don't like cheer at the end if there's a really violent altercation where the cancer patient gets like shot in the fucking abdomen. (laughs) Alex Forrest is as demonstrably sick as a person with cancer, there's no way that you could watch this film and confuse what's going on with her as anything other than very severe delusional mental illness. Ah! 
to say goodbye to me last night. But he couldn't. Because he and I feel the same way about each other. Do you know how it is when you meet somebody for the first time? And you get this instant attraction. So obviously the ending of the film was reshot, as you've said before, and in the ending that makes it to the screen, Dan is, he's let off completely. In the original ending, Dan is forced to pay legally in a way for his actions. Uh, it's, it's kind of moot because even in the original ending, Beth finds this audio tape of Alex threatening to kill herself. It's implied that this will be enough for the authorities to release Dan from being a suspect. It's very pat. Yeah, it is. I guess the first reaction when we see that is that, oh, Dan's going to pay for his affair, and uh, it's immediately undone. Yes, the tape of freedom. <laughs> Who's, who knows if that's actually going to be enough, but it's implied that it is. I actually love the original ending. It's because you're an idiot, Damien. Um, for a lot of reasons, but uh, I would agree that the ending that makes it into theatres is far more <laughs> exciting and cinematic. Even though it wouldn't have been as sensational and almost certainly wouldn't have been as popular, I kind of prefer the original ending. I think it's more artistic uh, and what made it to the screen was entertainment. I would agree with that. And the film is already fundamentally flawed in the way that it demonizes a career woman and holds up a housewife as a pillar of virtue. So I figure if we're already on the trash wagon, give me a great, fantastic, <laughs> cinematic, terrifying edge of your seat thriller ending and that's what fatal attraction does don't you ever pity me smug bastard i pity you i pity you because you're sick why because i won't allow you to treat me like some slut you can just bang a couple of times and throw in the garbage tell me about the release and reception it's really fascinating looking at box office figures from the 1980s i may be the only person who has ever said that sentence you probably are and i hope you'll skip the reasons why it's so clearly where the idea of the blockbuster took off after beginning in the 70s and reading through the weekly top 10 you can see where that concept developed and matured you start to see studios cashing in on sequels, especially the Indiana Joneses and Star Warses and Ghostbusters and the horror franchises as well. But there's also still a plethora of original ideas that became hits. It wasn't particularly unusual for films to start small and build, and certainly a lot of films were positioned that way. In 1982, for instance, On Golden Pond was released small in order to be eligible for awards, built gradually, cracked the top 10 for the first time in its eighth week when it shot up to number one, and stayed there for seven weeks while grossing over $100 million. But that was a prestige film, so it was marketed differently. More often than not, films debuted at their peak position and then declined each week, although their cinematic lives were a lot longer than they are today when it's largely one weekend and you're out. Knowing this, we can see that Fatal Attraction is a bit of an anomaly. It debuted at number one after its release on September 18th, 1987, and stayed at number one for eight weeks. In its first weekend, it grossed $7.6 million. The next weekend, it was $7.7 million. The next weekend, it was $9.3 million. The next weekend, it was $10.5 million. It was all word of mouth and the reviews, positive or negative. It had tapped into something. It was different exciting and scary. There was no Oscars bounce because the Oscar nominations weren't even going to be announced for another three or four months. It wasn't the same as the number one films that had preceded it since the middle of the year. Comedies like Beverly Hills Cop 2, Revenge of the Nerds 2, Stakeout and Dragnet, or action films like Predator and Robocop and The Living Daylights. A thriller at number one for eight weeks 
You must be crazy. But that's what happened, and it was still in the top 10 as late as February of 1988, at which point it had grossed $156.6 million in the United States and would have been the biggest film of 1987 if Three Men and a Baby hadn't been released right at the death. It grossed another $163.5 million overseas for a total of $320.1 million and The Mantle as the highest grossing film of the year around the world. The reviews weren't quite as overwhelming as the audience response. Michael Wilmington of the LA Times is one of the most well-considered reviews out there from the time of the film's release. He called Michael Douglas's character a basically decent guy and said that Glenn Close's performance was infernally brilliant. This is the most dangerous kind of role for an actor yet. However, near the edge close goes, she cuts so close to the bone that every emotion stays in focus. He lamented the film's ending, stating that it was unlikely Fatal Attraction ever would have achieved the power and complexity of Hitchcock's vertigo, but unfortunately that, by the end, someone has decided to turn it into Halloween in Westchester or Friday the Yuppie 13th. The botched climax has a definite aroma of marketing research. Interestingly, Wilmington also stated that Dearden's icily well-crafted script featured genuine conflict and that while Dan accepts his life and boundaries, Alex can't. To reject her position summarily is to risk rejecting the validity of passion, even unreasonable passion, he wrote. Roger Ebert in the Chicago Sun-Times echoed the Friday the 13th reference, stating that Fatal Attraction was a spellbinding psychological thriller that could have been great if the filmmakers had not thrown character and plausibility to the wind. The film is so right for so long that you can almost feel the moment when the script sells out. Ebert also noted that the conclusion operates on the premise that Douglas cares nothing for his unborn child. He gave it two and a half stars out of four. Ebert's TV partner Gene Siskel, writing for the Crosstown Chicago Tribune, gave the film three stars and said this is the best crazed woman thriller since Clint Eastwood's gem Play Misty for Me. Only a gimmicky ending spoils an otherwise competently made shocker. Janet Maslin of the New York Times looked at the film in its contemporary setting. Years hence, it will be possible to pinpoint the exact moment that produced Fatal Attraction and the precise circumstances that made it a hit. It arrives at the tail end of the having it all age, just before the impact of AIDS on movie morality is really felt. It is a powerful cautionary tale. It shrewdly offers something for everyone. The desperation of an unmarried career woman, the recklessness of a supposedly satisfied husband, the worries of a betrayed wife. It is made with the slick, seductive professionalism that is a hallmark of today. Dessen Howe of the Washington Post wrote that Fatal Attraction puts the scare tactics of Jaws into a Kramer vs. Kramer family drama setting. He praised Glenn Close's performance. Close gives Alex dimension. This woman can be as demure as a librarian. She can also be suddenly sexy. Her justifications for her actions make her quite a tragic figure, until she becomes the female equivalent of the vengeance-crazed Robert Mitchum in Cape Fear. Close should take great pride in her performance. She should also expect a depressing avalanche of scripts requiring a she-wacko. Writing for The New Yorker, Pauline Cowell was derisive of the film. A primer on the bad things that can happen if a man cheats on his wife, she called it. Once Alex begins behaving as if she had a right to share in Dan's life, she becomes the dreaded lunatic of horror movies. But with a difference, she parrots the aggressively angry, self-righteous statements that have become commonplaces of feminist fiction. And they're so inappropriate to the circumstances that they're proof she's loco. They're the director Adrian Lyne and the screenwriter James Dearden's hostile version of feminism. The film is about men seeing feminists as witches, and the way the facts are presented here, the woman is a witch. 
Basically, this is a gross-out slasher movie in a glossy format. It's made with swank and precision, yet it's gripping in an unpleasant mechanical way. The picture enforces conventional morality in the era of AIDS by piling on paranoiac fear. Don't hold back, Pauline. The film was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Actress for Glenn Close, Best Supporting Actress for Anne Archer, Best Screenplay, Best Director and Best Picture. It won none. Both actresses lost to roles in Moonstruck, and Screenplay, Director and Picture went to Bernardo Bertolucci's The Last Emperor. Michael Douglas did actually win Best Actor that year for Oliver Stone's Wall Street. This has got to stop. Dan, if you'd agreed to see me, I wouldn't have called you. You get it, all right? It's over. There is nothing between us. You mean you've had your fun, now you just want a quiet life. <laughs> Why are you doing this? Doing what? You need help. Don't tell me what you I need. need. To, you need to shrink. Quiz. Cool. I'll go first. How many weeks did Fatal Attraction play in theatres in the US? 26. 39. Wow, okay. Almost a whole year. That's impressive. On which comedy show did Glenn Close reprise her role as Alex Forrest in a segment in which she attended a support group? Saturday Night Live. Yes, in 1989 when she hosted. In fact, that was really interesting because Glenn Close has always, post-Fatal Attraction in recent years, she's always said that, you know, she was very conscious of mental illness and she's fought for mental illness causes before. But that Saturday Night Live skit really played her as a she-wacko. Alex? You've been kind of quiet over there. How was your week? Well, you know that guy I've been obsessed with. (laughs) Well, I finally got up the courage to throw acid on his car. Uh Uh-huh. You see, he needs me. And, well, I spied on his family the other night. I was watching them through the window, him and his wife. (laughs) And, uh... Their little girl. He had just bought her a, a little rabbit. And, you know, it just made me sick to my stomach. So, anyway, the next afternoon I went to the little girl's school and I pretended I was a family friend and I took her out of school and I drove her to an amusement park. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Well, well, how does that make people feel? Louise, how do you feel about Alex kidnapping the child and taking her to the amusement park? Well, that's all very nice, Damien, but I think the big takeaway message is that I got that point and you didn't. Yes, like. In what movie does Tom Hanks reference Fatal Attraction? Big. No. Okay. Sleepless in Seattle. There is no way that we are going on a plane to meet someone who could be a crazy, sick lunatic. Didn't you see Fatal Attraction? You wouldn't let me. Well, I saw it, and it scared the shit out of me. It scared the shit out of every man in America. Should have got that. I don't know that well enough. Or maybe I do. What prop from the movie does Glenn Close keep hanging on her wall? It's the knife from the bathroom scene. It's cardboard. Very good. I did my research. Yeah, very good. How many times does the phone ring in the movie? 26. Only 10 times. Felt like a lot more. (laughs) Jesus. Oh, well, you've won this, but let's keep going. I'm going to give you a difficult one. Rank the following post-Fatal Attraction erotic thrillers in order from highest to lowest worldwide box office. (laughs) You're a dickhead. Okay. That's a totally unreasonable question, and I've refused to dignify it with an answer. There's five of them. Yeah, well, I'm not a computer, so I wouldn't have a fucking clue. 
You might have a clue. Just think of how big these movies are, okay? Sleeping with the Enemy, Basic Instinct, Body of Evidence, Sliver, and Disclosure. Um, Basic Instinct? Yes. It's a toss-up between Disclosure and Sleeping with the Enemy. I'll say Disclosure. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, and then Sleeping with the Enemy, I guess. And then Sleeping with the Enemy. And then what was it, Body of Evidence? Uh, a body of evidence and sliver. So I would go sleeping with the enemy, sliver, body of evidence. You got five for five. Oh my God, you are being fucking embarrassed in this quiz. Basic instinct, 352.9. So that actually grossed more than Fatal Attraction. Uh, disclosure, 214, which I'm surprised it was that big. Sleeping with the enemy, 175. Uh, sliver, again, surprised it was so big, 123.9. And body of evidence... Uh, poor Madonna, 13.3. <laughs> I guess everybody had already seen it all in the sex book. Yeah, that's right. All right, well, Damien, out of five. And I will remind you that you gave Greta four out of five. Uh, four stars, maybe four and a half on a good day. I think it's trash, but boy, is it fun trash. I don't think I will ever see this film as a masterpiece, but it's certainly worth watching. Glenn Close is really brilliant in the film. She's so good in this movie. And I, as I said before, I could watch Michael Douglas in this type of role any day of the week. Well, there's like at least eight different films where he plays exactly this role. Pretty much everything in the 90s feels like this. I gave this film four stars too. I think it's a really great psychological thriller. I mean, having said that, I gave Greta mid three star at best. But I think Fatal Attraction's far, far superior to that. And I think it's far superior to most of the psychological thrillers, derivations that are, that came after it, like uh, Single White Female, uh, Hand the Rock's Cradle, The Good Son, Pacific Heights. I think that it's far more sophisticated than those films. The fact that it had such a cultural impact and that it's become essentially a curio of what it meant to live uh, in the 80s is just I guess, adds to its intrigue and makes it even more significant. I'll always love it. It's a childhood favourite and it's just great fun to watch, as you say. So I'm uh, in total agreement with you. Four stars. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. We'd like to thank you all for joining us again. It was so hard for me to pick this time for our next episode because I had this pile of Blu-rays sitting next to me. But I decided let's stay in 1987 because what an interesting year. And let's look at something a bit more lighthearted because most of this season's episodes have been quite heavy with Sunset Boulevard, The Letter, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and now Fatal Attraction. My intrigue levels are just bulging to the point of I may need hospitalisation. So join us next month as we discuss one of our favourite comedies a film we love just awful Norman Jewison's unforgettable Moonstruck Oh I love that movie and you know I just recently watched it as well It's like one of the most well written comedies just the dialogue in that movie is sensational. Okay well I'm super excited I fucking can't wait that's great. So it's been great to have you all on board and we will see you next time See you later Jesus Christ, I mean, let's be reasonable. Be reasonable. <laughs> what? Thank you, goodbye, don't call me, I'll call you. Look, you knew about me, all right? I didn't hide anything. I thought it was understood. What was understood? The opportunity was there and we took it. Come on now, we're, uh, we are adults, aren't What's we? What's that supposed to mean? I thought we could have a good time. No, you didn't. You thought you'd have a good time. You didn't stop for a second to think about me. That's crazy. You knew the rules, Alex. What rules? 
Look, Alex, I like you. And if I wasn't with somebody else, then maybe I'd be with you. But I am. Please don't justify yourself as pathetic. If you'd tell me to fuck off, I'd have more respect for you. All right, then fuck off. And you get out! 